actually a lesson, a lesson sermonette, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you have a teacher more than a preacher today, so that's what it is. Sunday, January 28th. The Bible is full of women of great power. Familiar ones are stories we've heard again and again, in part because the women in those stories fit our contemporary expectations for women. In the Bible, these women are brave, they take risks, and defy expectations. They save their families, they rescue their husbands, teach apostles, carry on the family line, supply the funds, and share the good news. <coughs> Today, we will look at women who speak in sometimes new voices. We will look, they, but they do speak, and we can learn from them. Keep our ears open to new concepts, ideas, and people who speak to us today in ways anew. Awaken us and make an us all anew. Lord, just put our hearts in the hearts of these women that we have things to tell us, new ways of looking at things. May my voice manage to finish the time and you have given us all gifts to hear and to read and to listen. In your name, amen. The church calendar for yesterday asks us to remember three women who helped Paul and his co-workers spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the new territory in the early days of the early days of the church. So our first story comes from Acts 16. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. The we in the story is Paul and Silas. Many of their stops did not have churches to preach in, and they were just kind of ad-libbing as they went, because that's the way itinerant and traveling preachers did for years and years. Paul, in the early days of the church and in the places like I grew up in, those were the same pastors. They settled where they were invited. And just like in Paul's time, the women often were the inviters who said, come to my house. This is where we meet. So Paul comes to town with, his, with Silas, and they ask, where do we go? And they hear that normally on, on the Sabbath, there were women gathering at the river for prayer. And here they found attentive ears and a welcome. Lydia, a businesswoman, a seller of purple goods, dyed, purple dyed goods were very expensive. So whatever her business was in selling of purple goods, it wasn't to just anybody. It was the people around. So it applies that she's a rather successful purpose. 
our scripture tells us that she and, and the women there were very receptive to Paul's words, and they asked to be baptized. She not only asked to be baptized herself, but all of her household, and that's often how it went. These then became the first European converts. We are in Philippi, in Macedonia, in Greece. And what does she do when she hears this word? She who has the means invites them to come and stay at her house. Make my place your place and base of operation. I don't think it took much persuading. She invited and they came. Dorcas and Phoebe were also mentioned. They're not part of the story here, but Dorcas was a woman who sewed for those who couldn't sew for themselves. She took care of the widows and, and those who didn't have much in her community. She got very ill, and her friends called Paul, because they knew he was close, and said, come, she needs your help, she needs healing. So he came, and when he got to their house, when he got to that house, they had out there for him to look at all of the things that she was noted for. They had show and tell of all her work so that he would know how important she was to the community. And he did heal her, and she went on to work longer. Phoebe, also in the same time frame of Paul's time, was one of those who was in, in Philippi, or not, not Philippi, but near Corinth in Greece. And she appeared to be just a right-hand man for Paul. She had been an early convert to there, opened her heart to the Lord and said, what do you want me to do? And she was a deaconess and did what she needed to do. And eventually, Paul sent her with a letter, perhaps even a letter to Romans, to Rome. An ambassador she became. Paul knew the value of women. Then, of course, that's, an, that's a New Testament story, but I have some Old Testament stories for you. So let's look, go to the way back at the beginning and go to Exodus 1. Yep, he, he found it, Exodus 1. This starts kind of in the middle of the story, so I'll have to back up a little bit, but that's fine. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now what's the deal with this story? Well, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, is a little unglued over all these slaves, all these people who are populating, doing all this work, of course, but they seem to be getting stronger and stronger, and they kind of produce a threat to him. So it implies he summoned the midwives. The earlier part of the story says the midwives' names are Shifra and Pua. There are the most interesting names for not only the men in the Bible, but I think the women take the cake. <laughs> Shipra and Pua probably were kind of the main midwives in the whole community. 
They took care of both the Egyptian women and the Hebrew women. And <clears throat> so they represented all the, all the other midwives. And so the Pharaoh calls them in and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you, when you attend the birth, to make sure that none of the boys live. Well, the, don't let the boys live because that's how they line up their things. All the lineage goes through the men, through the boys, through their name. And that would kind of take care of them, wouldn't it? Because there wouldn't be those names left. Those people would be gone. But Shepard and Pua said, um, that doesn't sound right. They answered to God. And they, uh, nothing happened. The boys weren't dying. And so he called them back again and said, what the heck is going on? You know, I told you, make sure that they don't live. Well, you know what they had for an answer. Pretty gutsy one, I think. It says, well, we can't get there fast enough. Babies are born before we get there. You can't do anything about that. They're already here, and that's going to be what it is. They were rewarded by God for being resourceful and quick-witted and standing up to Pharaoh. Most of the time, you would think they would have been slaughtered right away because obviously they had more clout than they thought they did because the law was unjust, and they said, no. Today, we call that civil disobedience, don't we? <laughs> the king still plotted, and the women still disobeyed, but you know what the next story is in the line of all this? We find Moses put in a basket. He's trying to escape the same thing, and eventually, he was, he was rescued, he rescued all of his people and they all left Egypt. Just think then what happened. All those stories that we know of what happened when he finally said, Pharaoh finally says, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. I wonder how he worked at getting his pyramids made that way. <laughs> <laughs> They're still there. Let's turn to another Old Testament story found in Numbers. If you have looked at numbers at all, I think you would know that it's not one of your favorite books to read A, B, C, one, two, three verses down the line because it's only the genealogists that really care about all that stuff. Because it's name after name after name, how they're connected, really pretty boring. But what happens is in the middle of census taking, as genealogists do when they're starting, when they're when you search for ancestors that you don't know anything much about, the genealogists go to all those lists to see what they can find for clues. And so here comes a story of five sisters. Numbers 27, 1 to 11. And get ready for interesting names. The daughters of Zelophed, son of Hephar, the son of Gilead, the son of Makar, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. Genealogy. The names of the daughters of Zelophad were Mela, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. They came forward and spoke to the priest, to the Eliezer the priest, and Moses. 
and the leaders and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses bought, brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to him, What Zelophan's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, If a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative of his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. What's going on here? Five sisters come to the tent of meeting. They come because they have something to say. They have a grievance to bring. And at that time, Moses sat at the tent, and the leader sat with him, and anyone who had a dispute or a challenge or a question came before them to pitch their case. Moses did not send them away because they were women. He listened to them. So that tells us that women were welcome to come to bring issues before the council. Moses, what does he do? He listened. And then what did he do? He consulted God, which is how he did that. That was how they wrote this. At the tent of meeting, they brought the issues to Moses, and he took those issues to God and said, now what? And then he would bring the answer. You heard God's answer. God said, they are right, they should inherit. And so he said, now change the law. The sisters had followed all the process. They went to the right place, to the right person. They made a good case. They stood up for themselves, and it got results. But results come very slowly. There are two more scripture passages that tell more of this story. It takes a while for this justice process to take effect. Don't we sometimes say, get on with it, come on now, this is happened a long time ago and you're still batting around and it's 10 years ago since all that happened. How's anybody even remember anything? But in this instance, God said, this law will change. It took two more rounds before they could settle this because everybody's <coughs> reluctant sometimes to follow through. Or, you know, they're wandering around in the wilderness, they got, they're just kind of getting ready to go into the promised land and everybody's getting their staked out place. And so, you know, it probably fell through the cracks. 
But eventually, that became the law. It became how they operated. And that's how it is. Where do we extend ourselves in the justice around us? Do we, do we need to go to bat for somebody? Whether it's ourselves, because we need to go to bat for us. How do you get started? Where do you go? To the right place, to the right people. Make a good case. It usually gets hurt. More stories from Old Testament time. Let's look at Joshua 15. We have as our main character Caleb. You might have heard of him. He was one of those people that was sent into the promised land to see how the land was. Do we dare go in or is it something else? And Caleb and Joshua thought it was a good thing to go right ahead and the rest of them with them said, there are too many people, they're too big, we can't overcome them and we better get out of there. And so they didn't go for a while. Like 40 years they wandered around before they came back. That's the Caleb we're talking about here. He has a daughter. Let's hear the story. Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kithra Sefer. He needs this city. He needs it taken care of. So he sends his generals and his armies out. And Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took the city. So Caleb gave his daughter to Aksa for marriage. One day, when Aksa came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. That any part independent in in between the lines story that's there because I had a little trouble with I look at this and it says, okay, she's now the bride of Othniel. That's a statement. The next verse says, one day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. So in their conversations with each other, she says, why don't you ask my dad for a field? We, we not got to think about future. we got to be in there. Then the next sentence says, when she got off her donkey, wait a minute, that does not the way we read stories today. <laughs> There's, there's a whole paragraph or two about what happens in between there. So obviously she has asked Othniel and they've gotten a field because that's implied in the next sentence. <coughs> she comes to her dad and says, and he says, well, what do you want, daughter? And she said, do me a special favor. You gave us land in the Negev. Do you know where the Negev is? It's all desert. What good is land in the Negev without water? Aksa knows that. She says, well, I admit, you gave me land, but I think if we're going to have that land to do us any good, it better have water on it. So she goes to Dan and says, we need water. And she, she gets water. She gets more water. She gets lots of water. She gets upper springs and lower springs. That means all of her land will have water. She got more than she asked for. 
Dad likes her a lot. He'll give her what she wants and maybe what she needs. And not only that, he gives her more. We need to think about that story when we go to our Heavenly Father and ask for needs. Needs. He loves to give us what we need, and he often gives us more than we could ever think of asking for. Our Father, Heavenly Father, hears our petitions and loves to give it to us. And it doesn't have anything to do with merit, only love and grace. Now we'll move to the New Testament and we'll call it our gospel lesson today. So as we read Matthew 15 and what it has to say, let's stand. You need a little stand up there. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Leaving that place, Jesus drew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away because she keeps crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, O Christ. You may be seated. What's going on here? Is this the Jesus you recognize? Is this a familiar story? I, you know, I'm sure you've heard the story before, but let's maybe look at it a little differently. Is this the response that disciples usually give? The story says, first of all, when she came to him, Jesus didn't say anything. He just ignored her. That just does not seem right. Jesus always responds to people, doesn't he? Not here. Not here. Where's that compassion that we know about him? The healer we know. When they ask for healing, he says, sure. In this case, he ignores her. And then the disciple says, let's just get rid of her. She's just bugging us to death. We've got plenty of stories about those women that they tried to shove away that said, don't pay any attention to them. Out here. But the, women, the woman again says, Lord, help me. She's speaking for her daughter who's in pain, wants to attention for her daughter, and she comes to Jesus because she knows that he can do it. That's why she came. Well, she's a Canaanite woman. How in the heck does she know about this guy anyway? He's already got a super reputation. His word is known around, and his word says 
he heals. People came to him in droves, and that so does this woman from Canaan. They call her a Syrophoenician woman. That's another title for her. That just means she comes from that upper part called Syria, next to Phoenicia, along the coast. That's who she is. She's not quite one of the circle of believers, not one of the people that Jesus has been dealing with, maybe to this point. And, and I'm not good at the, the time frame of all the stories because they're not always written in a one, two, three fashion, like this happened today and that happened next year and the next year and, and so on throughout the three years. The stories are told in circles almost. So we're not sure what point this is in his, in his time frame, but she's a mom and she's on a mission. She's on a mission to help her daughter. She's persistent, she's persuasive. He even calls her a dog. That does not exactly sit right, does it? He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Does that mean if you aren't one of Israel, you won't be helped? That's sort of what it says. And then he says, you shouldn't take the children's bread and toss it to that auction. She said, oh yes, you should. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. Even the dogs eat the crumbs off the table, so surely we should. So in calling her a dog, he is acknowledging in part, and that we can recognize too, that he's responding to not one of Israel, but she's making her case, making it well, and he is looking at her new, like we can. This Canaanite woman is outside the traditional circle of faith. And now he acknowledges her as a child of God and within that circle. He responds to her faith. She's acknowledged as being one of God's own, just like we are because we are not Hebrew people. We are not Israelites. We are Gentiles like her outside of that first circle. And Jesus opened that circle time and time again. Maybe this was one of the first parts when he acknowledged that with the people around him, that he's including everybody, not just those of Israel. Can we identify with the woman from Cana? Oh, I think any woman can who has a child in pain who comes to the only healer they know and you go to bat. We can, we can know that we have to reach out with the gifts that we have. And that's persuasion, that's the gift. The women we've been reading, hearing about today have shown us a strong faith, a willingness to go to bat for themselves and for others to be persistent for the rights and welfare of others. They use all the channels available to make their case. And I find it inspiring to hear these women's stories, which so often come in a different manner, not quite how it sounds familiar, but in ways anew. There is a place for us to serve, to deepen our faith, 
by reading these stories, by reading the scripture, we can learn from them. Faith is not about the answers. It's about the relationship. Faith is trust. Trust that God is for me, for you, and for us.